Welcome to Shangri-La. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are reviewing... What? Lost Horizon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, are we wa- what did we watch I- this week? We are reviewing Lost Horizon by... Frank Capra. Yeah, our first Frank Capra movie I'm not just instantly convinced should have been the Best Picture winner. And not just because it's only the second movie that we've watched in the year. Yeah. Which is, by the way, 1937. (laughs) What did you think of this movie, David? Um, you know, it's weird. There were parts of it I liked. I liked the beginning. I like our main character, although in practice, like everything in this movie, it's super problematic. This is kind of the original Shangri-La story. And as a result, I think like I've seen so many versions of this that do it better in really important ways that like handle the obvious colonialist issues that arise from Shangri-La way better. Uh, handle utopianism way better than this movie does that I kept expecting to happen because like if fucking Tailspin did it then Frank Capra can handle it (laughs) oh man but Tailspin was really an extraordinary television show that's so true I felt like it was really simplistic which kept surprising me because I'd read all this behind the scenes stuff about like how expensive it was and how Apparently, Capra's first cut was six hours long, which I can't imagine because I felt like the movie really made its point so quickly and then just kept making its point over and over and over again. And it was not boring, as often is the result when that happens, but it was like, oh, yeah, I guess each character has to do their part of making the point. So we have to watch how it plays out for them. The Amazon edition, anyway, has, like, the half hour of restored footage that they cut uh, at various points after the premiere of this film. And the parts you can definitely tell were restored are parts where they couldn't get the actual footage but could get the soundtrack, so just have these still images for them. Right. And literally every single one of those scenes, I was like, oh, you should cut this. (laughs) Like, it... It makes a lot of sense somebody cut this scene. It's pointless. I have to say, I mean, I do, like, very... I'm not going to say I don't remember those scenes because I do remember what happens in them, but uh, that they were like, they didn't really lend anything to the narrative. And I don't think that they were critical for the character development either. They weren't like particularly annoying or anything. It wasn't like cut this because it detracts from the narrative, which is certainly a thing that often happens in 1930s movies. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they didn't feel critical. I can't imagine this movie at six hours. Like, what What would they even do? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like you spend even more time trying to make the case for why Shangri-La is great in that, which is, like, already kind of the most racist thing about this movie is how much it's like, I know, I know, I know, it's Asia, but still, you've got to believe me, it's great. Where it's like... I, I believe you already. Like, I believed you when the weather was nice. Why are we doing this for an hour? They're in the Himalayas, but they're in a magical valley where there are roses blooming while there's a blizzard outside. Like, I'm, you sold me. It's fine. Yeah, it's also weird that you, not that you said that, but that point that you made is is weird because 
in 2019, there's such a sort of opposite colonialist idea of Asia as the place that is like peaceful and and heavenly and paradisical and like it was interesting to me to see that in the 30s that was not what apparently what people were thinking yeah it's not a yoga retreat automatically which is like the 2019 western view of asia is like everybody is always in lotus pose like meditating yeah i actually found that vaguely interesting Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. This is why I was saying that I like Robert Conway. I like our our lead character. Is I think the movie actually does a pretty good job of like not making him racist and making it clear that the problems of the outside world that Shangri-La is an escape from are definitely like as much about Britain as they are about China. And it does interesting things with that. Mm -hmm. It then, of course, totally destroys that by having Shangri-La be a white dude's idea, because of course. But he himself does this really interesting (laughs) drunk monologue at the start of the film, which is the only thing I ever heard about that they cut that absolutely was a stupid thing to cut. Of just like, now that I'm going to be defense minister, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just dismantle the army. And then foreign secretary, foreign secretary, you're right. I'm going to dismantle the army. And then when the other army shows up, we'll just let them in. And then they'll be like, wait a minute. this that That's not how this goes. These people seem very nice. They're not even shooting at me. And then they'll all just give up. That's what I'll do. And then his brother, who is a dick, is like, you're too drunk. And he's like, don't worry. I'm not actually going to do any of that shit. I'm a coward. And I'm like... <laughs> I really like him. <laughs> yeah, I I immediately loved Bob Godway, who is Ronald Colbert's character. So the plot is like, it is so simple that I can give it very, very quickly. So Bob Conway is the foreign secretary of England, despite the fact that all of the British people in this movie uh, are American actors not using British accents. He has to go to China or like... He's in China and has to leave China, but his last project is to rescue some people from a made-up city called Baskul, which in the book is actually in Afghanistan, but in this movie is in China, because there's a revolution. He gets on a plane, it's him, his brother, this paleontologist? (laughs) Some kind of plumber turned, like, Wall Street swindler? And basically like a flapper girl who has some sort of horrible terminal illness. Their plane is actually hijacked by someone who literally never speaks. It crashes at or runs out of fuel at the base of the Himalayas. They are rescued by the mysterious High Lama, who is a white dude that I'm not quite sure... uh, is not supposed to be Chinese. Yeah, because all the other white people in Shangri-La have extremely white people names, but he's named Chang. Yeah. Yeah, and at one point, someone does refer to him as Chinese. Uh, I think George. They, like, hike up this mountain in the worst blizzard you've ever seen. They get to this valley that looks like uh, Portland, Oregon in May because it's just, like, exploded with roses it's sunshine and beautiful, and they're like, oh, yeah, the it's funny, the mountains on every side just protect us from the weather. And I'm like, do they also provide extra sun? Then, of course, like, half of the people 
or most of the people in the party are, are very suspicious of the whole situation. Eventually, they get won over to this utopia, except for George, who falls in love with some Russian woman who apparently wants to get out of Shangri-La. Bob Conway falls in love with some other woman who is kind of like not even important to the story. Then the founder of the community, who was a monk, who founded it like 200 years ago, calls him up because the guy is still alive and is like, we actually kidnapped you and brought you here because I'm dying and we need you to run the utopian colony. And he's like, hmm, okay, why? (laughs) Then George is like, well, we have to run away and I'm taking Maria with us. Bob, of course, doesn't want to leave because he likes the place and he's in love with the other girl. But being a good guy and loving his brother and feeling duty-bound to his brother, he does leave. They, like, hike through the Himalayas. Maria ages rapidly as they're going through the Himalayas because she was being kept young by Shangri-La. Dies. Then George sees her like old lady face and jumps off of a cliff because his brain can't handle it. Bob is rescued, and then while he's on a ship to be taken back to England, jumps ship and goes back to Shangri-La. Which reminds me, the very end of that does remind me of a way that I would watch an extra hour of this movie is the part at the very end where the weird guy who's tracking him describes how awesome the chase was for like a full year. (laughs) And you're like, why didn't I get to see that? Yeah. Like there's just this weird scene at the Adventurers Club where this guy is like, gentlemen, let me tell you of Robert Conway, the raddest man to ever live. He learned to fly a plane in two days. And basically it's that entire... 1990s Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, like, grifter movie. We just did that off screen in 20 seconds, and it was rad as hell. And let me tell you something. I believe in Shangri-La. And you're like, okay, where's this energy coming from? Where was this movie? Yeah, I, uh, I would also watch an additional hour after that of Bob Conway going back to Shangri-La and explaining to everybody sort of what happened <laughs> and then being like, wow, that's that's fucked up, man. I am definitely never leaving here. <laughs> the combination of reactions I would expect when he gets back to Shangri-La are, one, why did you believe your brother? He sucked constantly at everything and about everything. Yeah. And two... Oscar. Two, even though your brother sucked, you're trying to tell me he saw an old woman's face and freaked out and jumped off a cliff? You killed him, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah, actually, I wouldn't say that Bob Godway would kill him, though. He's such a gentle human. Oh, yeah. No, I don't see it. It's just the most suspicious thing ever when you because it's so random when he does it. When George jumps off the cliff, it is so, like... Oh, it's so instantaneous. It's not like... Yeah. It's not like he's trying to come to grips with it and they walk on for even, like, a moment. It's like he sees her face and Bob is like, oh, well, I guess she was really old. And then cut to the next shot is George going, ah, over the side of the mountain. Yeah. It's like, I am no longer necessary for the plot, so goodbye. (laughs) Um... No, I mean, George does have one 
the redeeming quality, which is, well, he has two redeeming qualities, but you have to take them in tandem. Okay. He has Clark Gable's hair. Okay. And a young Gary Cooper's face. Okay. And that's it. And I was like kind of pulling for him at the beginning. I was like, okay, well, like he's naive and kind of like a dipshit, but he's the younger brother, whatever. I was really pulling for him to like become enlightened. And by the end of it, I was like, whatever, send that pretty face and good hair over that cliff. I do not give a shit. Yeah. I I mean, I think one of the like weird things about this movie is that like, it is totally fine with the idea of building a utopia and letting the rest of the world just die. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. In this way that, like, does make you kind of want to root for the people that are suspicious of this place. And then you're like, oh, I guess we're not supposed to be. Yeah. I guess we're doing a, like, test of faith narrative where you just have to believe in the good place. And not that, like, hey, it's kind of fucked up that these are the only people seemingly just at random. Because it's other than Bob, there's no real sense that the people of Shangri-La are, like better or superior to the rest of humanity, they just, like, fucking lucked out and got to live in this awesome valley where nothing bad ever happens and you're immortal. And that's particularly pointed out by Maria because she's in Utopia and wants nothing more than to get out, which is the, you know, what is that whole thing from uh, Paradise Lost? Like, the mind itself is a place and could make a hell of heaven and a, a heaven of hell. Like, that's absolutely her whole thing. Though, I would like to know more about why she wants to get out. Like, has something terrible happened to her there? Right? It's so random. You don't even get the sense of, like, that the stasis of the place is making her lose it or anything. It's almost like the movie doesn't want to blame the brother entirely for this stupid fucking plan and so has to create this extraneous female character to blame for the bad idea of leaving Shangri-La because like it isn't motivated by anything she just seemingly wants to leave so that there can be a character that wants to leave and like it is weird because she also seemingly she must know she will grow old and die and she keeps insisting she's like no they always lie and say that i'm old but i'm really 25 or whatever her age is that she says she is right so is it like a vanity thing is that what i'm supposed to be going with that like that's her sin that she's being punished for because boy does the movie want to punish her yeah or I, I mean i don't even know if it's vanity like maybe she's delusional it's it's really not clear they don't do a whole lot with this woman and i feel like when you have this kind of utopia where people become suspicious of how perfect it is like in brave new world you know there is always like the dark side of the utopia like what do we have to sacrifice in order to live in the perfect harmonious society and there doesn't seem to be any sacrifice the place they live is gorgeous Everybody laughs all day long and has a great time. They have all of the comforts of the Western world. Like, they've got pianos and art and all of this other shit. Yeah, it's not clear to me, like, what's happening. Like, people aren't being, you know, genetically engineered to be the toilet cleaners. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the sort of stated argument, which I guess we're supposed to not think is nonsense, is that just, like, being in this land of plenty means there are no scarce resources for people to fight over. 
when it's pointed out that there totally are, it's like everyone is so polite because of the lack of other scarce resources. Right, yeah, like when Bob sees, oh, what the hell is her name? Sandra, yes. Sure. Yeah, I had to look it up because like she's so not important. When he sees Sandra, he says something about, you know, oh, well, some guy is going to have to very politely yield to me. Because he asked, you know, what happens if two guys uh, fall in love with the same woman? And and the High Lama says, oh, well, they just, uh, uh, one of them just politely declines. Which, you know, fine, okay, sure. But then there's no, there's no issue there. Like, there's not actually any competition for Sandra's affection. The other part of that that's super weird is how the movie really wants to let you know that even though, like, young-looking women can be super old, Sandra isn't. She's regular age. It's fine. What was really interesting about that for me is she says she's 30, but also Maria says she's 25. Like, is there something in Shangri-La that makes them believe that they're a certain age when they're not? I don't know. I th- Sandra is 30 is what I thought from that. I thought only Maria was lying. I did too. But then when Maria said it, I was like, oh, well, um, hmm, maybe there's... Maybe there's more here than it seems, but, you know, also maybe not. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I don't think we're supposed to think there's a dark side. Because there's this explicit dark side, which is, we're just gonna let the rest of the world die. And be this, like, place where learning is preserved after all these other dumb fucks kill each other. And you go, and you're <laughs> supposed to go, oh, okay, great. Alright, yeah, that that makes sense, cool. Yeah, that that's all supposed to be okay, makes me think that, like... Oh, there's just not supposed to be a dark side here because there was a real option and we just decided to abandon it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, at one point, doesn't Saunders say something to the effect of, you know, I would love for the whole world to come here? Which, when she said that, I was like, yeah, but see, you're not, I don't think it's the place that does it. I think it's the people. Because George never gets won over. Maria, as far as we can tell, has been there for, like, 80 years or something and hasn't been won over. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to work out if you bring everybody there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, well, I mean, there's two arguments here. One is just, like, the place is magic. It doesn't make any sense that the lack of stress makes you 250 years old. But two, the, the other argument is, like, if you're taking the movie on its own terms, if you're believing the explanation provided to you, then this has to be this incredibly fragile system. Right. How does adding a George not fuck the whole thing up? Why doesn't it fuck the whole thing up? Why don't they ask him to leave? They say, like, specifically that moderation is the thing that makes it all work, is that everybody sort of behaves in a moderate way, including, you know, in moderation. But George is not moderate. And no one ever says to him, like, hey, buddy, the way that we do things here is, like, people uh, don't act like this. And there's the other thing where they talk about how they're being kidnapped and held against their will. But at no point does it seem like anyone is actually keeping them there. Now, they were certainly kidnapped. I, I mean, literally, they, like, had some guy replace who was supposed to be their pilot and sacrifice his life. To bring Bob Conway there because he apparently wrote some books that people liked, which cool, I guess. 
But no one makes them stay there. I'm also deeply confused by the economy of the place, because supposedly only this, like, one tribe of Sherpas ever brings in anything. And, like, they brought it in slowly over centuries to explain how they have, like, the fucking Louvre in the middle of this monastery. Right. But then you hear that the place is 200 years old, and you're like, oh, that's like an order of magnitude off. Like, that, like there's no way they carried all this shit up here in 200 years, especially if they only show up once every couple of years. Apparently the mountain is just, like, full of gold, and they're like, yeah, we don't need this, so we just send it out for stuff that we do need. Right, which explains why the stuff they would get would be very high quality, but, like, how much stuff can 50 guys that come once every two years actually carry to you? Yeah, through the Himalayas. Like, we're not talking about they're putting something on a cargo ship. Right. Which is like, like how, how did they get a piano there? So it totally plays like they have to be bullshitting them. But then by the end of the movie, you're like, I guess they're not bullshitting them, even though that makes no sense. I guess that really is how they're getting everything they don't just make in the valley. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief on some stuff like that, because at, at its base, like this is it's a it's a fantasy, but it is. It's a very simplistic one. <laughs> like the world building, which a lot of the movie concerns itself with, is still full of holes. And it doesn't have that sort of like, I guess, post cyberpunk sensibility where like you don't have to explain the whole world because in reality, none of us could explain the whole world in which we live. So why? Like, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Sure. I mean, like, I think the reason I keep bringing all of these up is so much of the second act is devoted to, like, what is the real nature of this place? Who are these people? What's really happening? And then it's like... Exactly what they're telling you? (laughs) Yeah, it's the answer is exactly what they're telling you, but that makes you sit there with, like, oh, yeah, like, the things they're telling them don't make any sense. This is weird. And so I spent a lot of time of the movie going like, okay, so what is just like a detail that doesn't make any sense? And that's fine because fiction doesn't ever directly conform to reality. And what is a detail that's supposed to be weird and off for a storytelling reason? Uh, The problem is I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, the thing is, the movie never actually convinces me in tone that I'm supposed to believe that everything is on the up and up. Like the founder of the community is very suspicious and the actor who plays him plays him with like wide maniacal eyes and it's like, am I supposed to believe that he's this total zealot and that there is actually something deeper and darker here? But it's like, if his zealotry is just, is that a word, zealotry? Yeah, uh, yeah. Sure, It is now. If his zealotry is just, I want to make a place that is peaceful and perfect, then uh, is there anything really all that sinister about it? Well, I mean, I I think so, as it is explicitly an apocalypse cult. Like, the founder explicitly says he is trying to bring about the end of the—he has foreseen the end of the world as foreseen in the, like, in the Bible— and that he is trying to create a place for the meek to inherit the earth once the world ends. I mean, he's not trying to actively bring it about. He's making the shelter in which people can retreat. 
you know, you just brought something up that I had forgotten about until right now. When he talks about having foreseen the end of the world, and he talks about a weapon, like a single weapon that will do more than combined armies are capable of producing. Did you go like, holy shit, is this guy a fucking time traveler? Like, how does he know about the atomic bomb? Because I did. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I, I know that because I have done, as you know, so much War of the Worlds shit, that there was a lot of talk in the like pre-World War One interwar period about military escalation continuing infinitely. The power of weapons was just going to keep increasing exponentially until the whole world could be destroyed before we even got to nuclear bombs. But like, wow, that is a really accurate and concise description of a nuke. I mean, it was so specific. Yeah. The thing that gave me chills was a single weapon. And I was like, oh my god. They're like, they, they know. Because, yeah, like, there was always that idea, and I think really uh, since the Napoleonic Wars, of this war has had something that caused destruction on a level that we have never seen before. And certainly after World War One, that was true, and they did have weapons in World War One that were capable of killing a lot more people than previously. But a single weapon that would do as much devastation as an entire army is like, who who's a time traveler? Fess up, come on. I mean, the other thing I think is kind of fascinating about that sequence uh, and like weirdly comforting to me is the weird cynicism of 1937 of like, it's almost taken for granted that like, this is the end of days. Uh, like actually really. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That like Bob a little bit pushes back and is like, hey, are you sure this is going to happen in like my time? And the other guy just kind of shrugs, but like, 100% for sure, the idea is like, yeah, bud, we got maybe 10 years. And like, that isn't wrong. World War II was a bad scene. 1937 was not good times. But like, there is something weirdly comforting from the point of view of 2019 of like, this feeling that because things are really bad, we are in the end of days is... We've been here before. A lot of people are gonna die. It's not gonna be great, but humanity as a whole tends to pull through. Yeah, or just, like, it is hard when... It is hard to have a perspective about something that extreme. Because, like, I understand why that point of view would arise in 1937, but it kind of seems silly from the point of view of 2019. A little bit. To go, like, oh, we're almost there. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, like, in 1937, like, oh, yeah, we're almost there. Oh, of course, that like, you barely have to do the legwork on that. There was something a little bit comforting about that. I also felt like something else that the... Is he... He's not the High Lama. The High Lama is the guy underneath him. What do they call the founder again? I think the High Lama is the founder, and Chang is just Chang. Oh, okay. Yes, you're correct. So the High Lama says something when he's talking about why everybody... Or maybe it's Chang before he meets the High Lama. Anyway, someone who is in a position of, like great wisdom and mysticism talks about how like people in the outside world are constantly working and worrying themselves into an early grave and it's actually really fascinating to me to hear that in these movies from the 30s and it does tend to come up a lot in capra films specifically which like good on capra of this idea that the workers are giving more of themselves than they can do and still survive and still be healthy and and not literally like work themselves to death but it's also depressing because we 
know now that there's like actual physical stuff that happens when you're like constantly in a state of stress or you're not sleeping enough and that like a lot of chronic diseases and and all of that come from that which is a direct result of capitalism and yet we're still working so much more than people in the 30s even did so it's like god are we ever gonna learn this lesson (laughs) or are we ever gonna fix it like we've known the information but we haven't fixed it yet Though I think the movie is also kind of at pains to, like, make that class agnostic in this weird way, Mm. where, like, the very existence of the swindler guy, that, like, money does not actually provide any sort of a refuge from the sort of life-ending stress that Shangri-La is talking about anyway, not the actual physical one, where it does, but, like, within the film's universe... It is actually just the broader stress of deciding how to live that seems to be killing you. I think the Swindler, I think he's a much more interesting character than uh, than he's written, if that makes sense. So basically, Henry is the Swindler guy, and he calls Alexander Lovett, Lovey, and sister, and like toots, and a bunch of stuff, which I'm like, that's weird and he's kind of like misgendering this dude over and over again but also i don't think that that i don't think his intention is to say you are a woman to a man but the guy doesn't like him at first at all and alexander love is the paleontologist he's very well educated he's very prim and proper and kind of stuck up in that particular way and henry is like very rough and he has a an obvious lower class accent but what's fascinating to me is he was a blue collar worker he was a plumber who basically, like, from his story, fell into becoming a Wall Street swindler by pretending to have a company he didn't have that excited people so much that they invested a lot of money in it and then, like, lost a lot of it in the stock market crash. And it's honestly a little bit ambiguous how active a role of as a swindle it was supposed to be and how much it was just kind of this natural, like, you know, nobody actually at the IPO of Uber thinks Uber is worth $2 billion. Right, right. It's that that is the estimation of what it can build itself into. And that's still stupid. Right. But it's like, at least, like, but like, that, that price is never based on the actual real physical stuff that's sitting there. And that, like, if he had another five years, would it have even been a scam or would it have been a full company is very ambiguous. It kind of goes back to that thing that you said about Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, where money, like, kind of takes on a life of its own. And it really felt that way as if, like, the money aspect of it and the business aspect of it took on a life of its own because it doesn't seem that it was his intention to take people's money. It was that other people got involved and suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, your company is worth blah, blah, blah. Uh, which was a, a fairly like subtle, I guess subtle, Capra dig again at capitalism. It's really lovely how Capra is such a hardcore like labor rights anti-capitalist guy who is making these blockbuster films. Yeah, and it's all so like if I have any problem with it, it's that it's all like so blatant. <laughs> oh, it's totally surface. It's totally surface. I mean, like the subtlety of the thing with Henry is not that it's anti-capitalist. It's that people get caught up in this stuff because it is a machinery that exists 
that doesn't take people into consideration. And like, it's one of the things I personally don't like about Marx very much that seems kind of hand wavy to me, but like explicitly in Marxism, you're not supposed to be able to conceive of what Marxism is. That like we mired in capitalism cannot understand what life would be like beyond capitalism. Right. Shangri-La, when there are these scenes between Bob and Chang, definitely has this sense that like there's an explanation here and Bob just can't grasp it, which is kind of frustrating because like I say, you spend so much of that section of the movie looking for the scam that I'm not sure if that's intentional. Right. But there is something really interesting about the way Shangri-La works is mysterious because these people who are like so mired and like, no, it's an exchange. What do you get for the gold? Can't even fucking wrap their head around how any of this would work. Right, right. I don't know. I, I think that when I like this movie, I like this movie in the details. I, I kind of hate the plot of this movie. Like I say, I think the outside world coming in and destroying the, the sort of delicate utopia of Shangri-La is the way we do this a lot more now. And that's way better that we sort of colonize this. You can make an argument that Black Panther was a Shangri-La story and is very explicitly pushing back against this idea that a utopia that doesn't help the rest of the world is any kind of utopia at all. The small weird details of Shangri-La and of our characters I like way more than the story being told here, which is honestly kind of wastes a lot of time like you said there's not a lot there for a two-hour movie it really isn't the details and i think that's why i am latching on to henry because watching his evolution from like what are we doing in this place to like hey this this place seems pretty great to me is uh, I, I think really interesting i think lovett's transformation is also really fun to watch i i take back interesting because i feel like their paths are actually so obvious that to call them interesting is is wrong, but they are charming to watch. You know, I actually think Henry's is interesting. I think the others are kind of boring and inevitable. Lovitz kind of appeals to his vanity, which seems weird for a like message about a utopia. Even the vain idiots will feel like they have a place here. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, that's not really hard. Same with Gloria. It's like, yeah, you're not going to die. That's a great deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, Gloria's is, is so obvious. Honestly, the movie would be so much more interesting if the person who wanted to leave was the one who had those kind of stakes. And they try to infuse Maria with that. But the problem is we don't know if she's lying or if she's deluded as to the fact that she will age and die instantly. So if she's lying, why are those stakes there? But if she's deluded, then the stakes aren't there. She just, I mean, I guess she doesn't like the place because she's delusional is sort of how it, it plays. I almost thought that like she's in on it in some way. In that same way that like the pilot is apparently willing to give up his life to bring Bob there. That like Maria would give up her life to test Bob for whether he is worthy to be in Shangri-La. But then at the end, it turns out it's not a test at all and he's not punished in any way for his like weird lack of faith in the place. I mean, like, I guess he's punished in that, like, he has to make this treacherous journey back. 
But, like, they seemingly are just going to let him back in and let him be in charge. Well, he didn't have a lack of faith. He was just loyal to his brother. I don't know, because he needs he needs Maria to say they're lying before he's willing to do it. Or at least he needs to hear that so that he knows that his brother is not convincible, I suppose. Yeah. I liked Love It. I mean, I know he was definitely vain, but I appreciate any guy who's like, I mean, his vanity revolved around the fact that he wanted to teach, which I think is a little bit charming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Edward Everett Horton who plays sort of the buffoonish best friend in all of the... Um, uh, Fred Astaire movies. Fred Astaire, thank you. Yeah. All the Fred Astaire movies we've watched. And who's delightful and who I really like as an actor and I think does good work with it. I just think that there's this interesting thing with the Henry one where his immediate plan is... They tell me they have a shit ton of gold. I'm going to start a mining operation. And then, like, starts to do it, but then keeps getting distracted by, like, just being able to chill in Utopia. Until eventually, he's just like, why was I ever bothering with this shit? Like, why... (laughs) Why, like, not even here, but just, like, ever, out there, did I bother with this? I think is really interesting. It is an actual change in the character. Whereas, like... Love it's essentially the same character at the end of the film that he is at the beginning. He just like has figured out the part of Shangri-La that works for him. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't have really a character arc journey. He just has a journey from rejection to acceptance of his state. I mean, one could argue that he has a journey from pessimism, like inherent pessimism and anxiety, because he, from the first moment that we see him, is like, oh, I don't know if we're going to get back, and what if the plane crashes, and what if this happens? And he's like, he's very, very nervous, even on the flight, before they get kidnapped, to, uh, you see him in Shangri-La, and he's writing in his journal, and he's like, day two at Shangri-La, what are, what are they up to? What's going on? It's specifically the thing he keeps saying and writing in his journal is, this place is too mysterious, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> this place is too mysterious. And then it's like day 24 at Shangri-La. You know, actually, maybe this place is, uh, maybe this place is great. Which, I mean, that's the most simplistic journey I've ever seen. Inherent pessimism to inherent question mark acceptance. It almost plays a little bit, honestly, like Stockholm Syndrome. While I was still going, okay, what's the gimmick? What's the darkness behind the utopia? You know, what is the omelas? Where is the kid that they keep locked in a basement in a prison and treat horribly in order to make this place great? I kept thinking like, oh, okay, yeah, he's definitely in Stockholm Syndrome mode here. But it no, it just turns out that actually everything's great. My personal theory for what the dark side of it was going to be was, like, the place is too fragile. That Bob was gonna have to kick out George. That he was gonna have to deny his own brother Utopia to preserve Utopia. And, like, would or wouldn't be able to do it. Instead, it just seems like, honestly, Utopia is great. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody's all that worried at the end by the fact that like bob has told major newspapers about well has shangri-la has gotten into major newspapers its existence even as the ravings of a madman is an open secret now and nobody seems all that concerned about it and they somehow have access to various forms of media i mean the whole reason that they kidnap bob in the first place is because they've read his book so like we have to assume that they were aware of this pretty quickly yeah and we're still fine with it there's these weird gaps in it 
it is storytelling wise, I think easily Capra's sloppiest movie that we've watched, but it's still Frank Capra, so he can still make a fucking movie in a way a lot of other people that we watch can't. He really can. And I think even when he is presented with something that is as simplistic as this is, and which on paper and in our description feels like it should be, uh, frankly, like it should be boring, because it was like two hours long, right? Yeah. Maybe longer. That he's so good with humanizing every last person in the movie that even if their journey is as simplistic as Lovitz is, or Gloria, or even Maria, that you are compelled by these people. I mean, I will say that the really weak link in the cast is Sandra, and I don't think that it's Jane Wyatt's fault. It's just that she is totally, like, I don't want to say manic pixie dream girl, but because she's not manic. No, she's just... But she's, she's too perfect. She has absolutely no flaws. There's nothing interesting, really, about her. The weirdest thing about her is that she makes these little flutes out of like bamboo or reeds or something and ties them to the tails of birds so that whenever she walks around, like there's this mysterious sort of sci-fi score that follows her. And let's be honest, that's some Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer shit right there. Like that's <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, but you hear that and then you're like, oh, wow, she is a weirdo. And then like nothing ever really comes of it and she's not that weird. Though I do have to say that I found that to be very, very funny because every time that you see her, you hear this theme and then he like brings it up and he's like, how come every time you're around, I hear this music? And I was like, rock on for them making a meta joke. The other thing that's wild about that is that you're then expected to believe that Bob hasn't noticed this, like, insanely large flock of pigeons that follows her wherever she goes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That, that, like, <laughs> the other other thing that's weird about her is just, like, why isn't Sandra in charge? She seems to have a way better handle on everything that Shangri-La is about and into, and was literally raised by the High Lama. Just the weird assumption that you've got to bring in this, like, man of character to run the place that's just unspoken by everybody is so weird. Well, not only a man of character, it has to be a white Englishman. Right. It seems like literally everyone who's already there in Shangri-La is better qualified to run the place than Bob. It'd be one thing if there was like some, you're the only one that understands the dangers of the outside world. You can never truly be a part of Utopia because you have to stay on guard for what the outside world could do to it. But no, it's just like, you're books were really good man run utopia <laughs> but what particularly in light of his initial monologue where he talks about how he's gonna you know just disband the army and then says no i'm not gonna do any of that because i'm a coward did they miss that part because it sounds to me like if he's running the place and like the army shows up at the door he's gonna be like oh shit i i actually can't protect us or or do anything uh, or like Utopia will be over because I will fight back or he just doesn't seem qualified to maintain a Utopia by his own admission. The other thing that's wild about that is, no, they didn't miss that because explicitly that's why Sandra's into him. 
she explicitly read his books and was like, you seem like a little lost boy that doesn't care about anything and your life is empty and pointless. And he's like, yep, you caught me. And she's like, well, I'm into that for some weird ass reason. So let's make out. Yeah, and she says she's 30, so I don't believe she's still into that shit. That's a thing you're totally into when you're 22. (laughs) God, I hope in Shangri-La women aren't still into that until they're 30. (laughs) Unless the reason, and again, it's never explicitly stated, and this is me extrapolating really hard. Unless the reason is that in Shangri-La, the people who are considered to be worthy of being there... The point is to give them the things that the outside world cannot give them. And so rather than being foreign secretary, which is a leadership position where he has to enact policies that are against his personal morality, they're like, oh, well, we feel like he is worthy of coming to Shangri-La and therefore we will give him a leadership position wherein he can conform to his personal morality. But that's me like giving it a lot more credit than it actually deserves. So one... I thought what you were going with it is in Shangri-La, you can actually fix him. That's what makes it a utopia. (laughs) When he's a fixer-upper, you can actually fix him. But two, yeah, I kind of like the idea that this whole High Lama shit was in fact made up, but it was made up because that's what Bob Conway needed. Yeah, we definitely kidnapped you and brought you here. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Totally not an accident, because that's what you need to hear. (laughs) But yeah, we should rate and review this film because we've because we've talked, talked about, about it a lot. Enough. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, hmm, uh, six and a half. I'm yeah. torn between a six and a seven. For I was literally going to say the exact same thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight six because this movie does some weird racist stuff. The fact that Chang is supposed to be Chinese is weird. The fact that a white man has to be the one that came up with the idea of Shangri-La, because, of course, no one in Asia could think of a utopia. It's still got a lot of Frank Capra's good social messaging in there, and it's certainly not the most racist movie we've watched in the past two weeks. Dear God, no. (laughs) Uh, But, like, I... I'm, I'm... I'm torn between a six and a seven, and given some of this movie's flaws, I'm going to go with the lower score. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I'm going to do that, too. Um, what I will say about the racism, and I don't disagree with you, but I, I almost feel like the idea that this white guy had to be the founder of the utopia is almost more insidious than Asian people couldn't come up with it, but more that it is the Tibetan people who lived there already were already living in a utopia, but were too innocent and naive to be aware that they were living in a utopia. And so the white colonizer came in and was like, nah, I got this. Let me run everything. Which was sort of the impression that I got. I mean, there had to be people there, right? When he showed up, because they said that, that he showed up and his leg was injured and he had to amputate it himself. And the people were like, well, you know, if you just held on, it would have healed itself. But no one ever, like, gives credence to the fact that, oh, yeah, they were already living in this utopia. 
you just showed up and assumed command, which is like an extremely colonialist way to go about things. Yeah, I think that's a good point is that all he really did was explicitly reframe it as a utopian project instead of just these people whose lives were rad as shit. Right, and I I really would love to see the postmodern version of this that's like told from the perspective of the native people who are like, yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to call yourself the leader, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So nothing changes, but you get to tell yourself that you're the leader of the place? Yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> Should you watch this movie? I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm torn for the first time in a while. I mean, I've, I'm leaning toward no, just because it is over two hours long. It's not the best Frank Capra by a wide margin. There's better. There's some interesting stuff in here. I guess if, like, any of the, like, themes strike you as particularly interesting or, like, you're into Shangri-La stories or something, it's worth a watch because it's still a Frank Capra movie. But, like, nah, generally speaking, no. I I would say no. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't recommend it. I can't be like, oh my god, you should totally watch this movie. I also, though, don't feel like I need to warn people away from it. You know, with the understanding that if you have room in your life for but one Frank Capra movie or but three Frank Capra movies, <laughs> this is not the one to watch. Yeah. It is not a terrible movie. It's not unwatchable. There's good acting in it. The photography is really quite beautiful. The kidnapping plane ride sequence takes like 15, 20 minutes. And I was continually stunned by how not bored I was. <laughs> Because Frank Capra's really good at making movies. I'm not going to go out and say, like, it's a must-see, because it's not. It's it's fine. Yeah. A couple of interesting behind-the-scenes bits of this before we close. Apparently, the Halai Lama role was initially offered to an actor named A.E. Anson. Capra personally called the actor's home. His housekeeper answers the phone and was told to relay the message to the actor. She tells him... Capra doesn't hear back. Then the housekeeper calls Capra and says, Hey, so I told him, and he was so excited, he had a heart attack and died. (laughs) Then he offered it to another guy named Henry Walthall, who died before shooting began. So Sam Jaffe was actually the third choice for the High Lama. That's uh, that's really the most interesting thing. The rest of it is like it ran horribly over time and over budget. It was not successful box office wise. No, one of the reasons they cut so much is that they spent like 20 years trying to figure out a cut of this movie that would make any money. Right, right. They cut a lot of the pacifistic speeches and things out of it for showing during World War II because, you know, they wanted to like... Make sure the troops were feeling, rah, rah, let's go kill people. It is also a little bit weird from the 2019 perspective when Bob goes into full on just like the other side. They're just like us. There's no reason for war. And you're like, that's not going to age well through Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Also, just an interesting tidbit. Jane Wyatt, who plays the totally uninteresting other than her weird flutes on her birds, Sandra, was Spock's mother on Star Trek. I did not know that. And apparently for her entire two appearances as Spock's human mother on Star Trek, she received more fan mail than any other role she had ever played, including years 
as the wife on Father Knows Best. <laughs> Which in no way surprised me. Yeah. So next week. What is next week? A Star is Born. Oh, right. 1937. Let me make sure that we all know since there were four. Oh, I was going to watch the Lady Gaga one. So I'm so glad that you... <laughs> of excited to watch the Lady Gaga one because everybody I know whose taste I like generally appreciate and and agree with or at least respect has said the Lady Gaga one is great but I also just cannot bring myself to watch a movie now when I know that I'm gonna have to watch it in 10 years. I kind of have that same problem where whenever I hear something nominated for an Academy Award, my reaction is now, oh, great, now I don't have to watch it because I'm going to someday anyway. Literally the only movie that I have watched that was nominated for Best Picture since we started this project was Get Out, <laughs> um, which I don't regret. It's a fucking great movie. Get Out felt like a movie that was like zeitgeisty enough that I needed to experience it with everybody else. <laughs> Whereas, like, A Star is Born has been made four times. To be clear, I've watched some stuff that, like, Black Panther got nominated. Oh, yeah, yeah. I watched it before it was announced, though. That's what I'm saying, is that, like, I've watched some stuff before it got announced that it was a Best Picture nominee, but when I have some stuff that I'm like, yeah, I should get around to seeing that, and then it's officially a Best Picture nominee, I'm like, oh, great, I guess I don't have to. Yeah, like, I really want to watch The Favorite, but I, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. I mean, part of it is that I know that I have to spend 10 hours a week on this podcast between like watching the movie recording and editing and i'm like god do i want to spend another two hours of my life on fucking movies that i'm gonna have to spend later anyway (laughs) this version of a star is born is the only other one that was nominated for best picture despite the fact that there were four yeah that's wild to me but you know what whatever especially because judy garland and barbara streisand were in the other two so it's like how were they not nominated that's what i'm saying <laughs> but yeah anyway so next week a star is born starring janet gaynor and frederick march who we like we like both of them directed by david oselznick who we don't have a great record with no no, no. actually I take that back we like david oselznick it's the other guy I always confuse David O. Russell. <laughs> David O. Russell. No, I always confuse him with George Cooker. Right. Like, if one of them does a, a Dickens adaptation, the other one has to do a Dickens adaptation and that sort of thing. Also, the poster has some real strong Soviet propaganda poster vibes. Wow, it really does. I don't know what that portends for the quality of this movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Because I, you know, know the rough story of A Star is Born, and I don't think that it has any uh relation at all yeah it doesn't doesn't seem like a real strong through line to any of the movies of a star is born but i guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah exactly until then uh, this was a movie it was yeah there's no question about that because frank capra doesn't know how to make anything else <laughs> <laughs> so true bye everybody <laughs> bye gentlemen i give you a toast Here's my hope that Robert Conway will find his Shangri-La. Here's my hope that we all find our Shangri-La.